Welcome to Weekend Ag Matters from the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Join us for an in-depth look at Iowa agriculture. Here's your host, Riley Smith. Rain is finally back in the forecast, so hopefully we can start to make progress on replenishing the soil levels before it freezes this winter. Welcome to this week's edition of Weekend Ag Matters. I'm Riley Smith. Dustin Huffman and Mark Magnuson will join us later on in the show. As for right now, let's start with a quick look at the news headlines. The U.S. Department of Agriculture is aiming to increase business opportunities in rural communities by leveling out the playing field for producers. U.S. Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack announced recently that the USDA is investing $73 million in 21 projects through the first round of the Meat and Poultry Processing Expansion Program, or MPPEP. Vilsack said the funds distributed under the program are intended to help increase production capacity across the supply chain. Increase competition and expand capacity, strengthen the supply chain, make sure that we fostered a producer-focused business model, strengthen local and regional food systems, reduce barriers to processing, did things at scale, helped to create jobs, and over time lower costs for consumers by expanding choice. At USDA, we've been focused the last nine months on developing more new and better markets for our producers. And certainly by expanding capacity and competition, I think we, in fact, are, in essence, creating more new and better markets for producers. Vilsack said the funding will also get used to help jumpstart independent processing projects. This required a comprehensive approach as we approach this. It required programs that would provide resources for new and expanded capacity and markets provide resources for strengthening the supply chain between the farmer and the consumer and making sure that there was the availability of credit uh, when the opportunities or circumstances required it. We announce awards supporting all three aspects of this approach into the president's plan for fair and competitive markets. Several grant projects in Iowa will be receiving some of these funds. On Wednesday, Teresa Greenfield, USDA Rural Development State Director for Iowa, announced that the USDA is investing over $16 million in three grant projects in Iowa through the first round of the MPPEP and $15 million through the Meat and Poultry Intermediary Lending Program, or MPILP. On top of that, the USDA is also making an over $38 million loan through the Food Supply Chain Guaranteed Loan Program, or FSCGLP. Greenfield said these investments will help in strengthening Iowa's rural communities through increased business opportunities. The Iowa projects that will be receiving funds are as follows. Region 12 Council of Governments Incorporated, an association for cooperative planning, which is based in Carroll County, will use the $15 million grant from MPILP to increase the number of meat and poultry producers in the state, provide capital for investment, and promote employment in the processing sector. Cherokee Locker Investment Incorporated in Cherokee County is receiving a $542,425 MPPEP grant to build a new mixed species processing facility to increase capacity. The new facility will make federal inspections possible to enable producers to sell meat in local retail markets and online. Upper Iowa Beef LLC, an independently owned beef harvest and processing facility in Lime Springs, will use a nearly $9 million MPPEP grant to expand the facility in Howard County and increase capacity to accommodate independent livestock producers. Pure Prairie Farms Incorporated in Charles City is receiving an almost $7 million MPPEP grant and an over $38 million loan from the FSCGLP. The funding will help the poultry processor in Floyd County expand and renovate a shuttered processing plant. For more information on all of these programs and more, 
visit usda.gov forward slash meat. In other news, Iowa soybean farmers are helping to expand national soybean export capabilities. A lot of Iowa soybeans, particularly in the western part of the state, are crushed and processed into soybean meal and oil. After the meal is collected, it is often put onto rail cars and sent to ports on the nation's coast for export. Mike Steenhook, executive director with the Soy Transportation Coalition, said that one of those ports is the Port of Grays Harbor in Aberdeen, Washington. And that soybean meal is exported to a lot of customers throughout Asia and for for it to be used as a high-protein feed for things like pork production and poultry production. So so a lot of what's grown here in Iowa is ultimately consumed outside the United States, halfway around the world. But that infrastructure of rail to that port is really essential uh, to to that journey. The Port of Grace Harbor facility has recently announced plans for a large expansion in order to handle more tonnage of soybean meal heading from the Midwest to trade partner countries. This current facility that is owned by AGP is, cur- is currently under a way of being expanded, and there is an announcement in this past March of a, essentially a doubling of their export capacity of that soybean meal. And it's largely inspired by this big trend within the soybean industry of processing more soybeans in order to have more soybean oil that can be used for that renewable fuels market. And what that does is going to provide a new opportunity for exporting soybean meal. This announcement by AGP is one of the most immediate ways of encouraging that greater export of soybean meal. So it's a very exciting development within our industry. Along with the expansion of the harbor's shipping capacity, the harbor is also in need of expansion and improvement of the rail facilities that deliver the meal to Aberdeen. Several soybean farmer organizations have realized the potential for growth in this project and helped to invest in the infrastructure needed. We're really excited that a, a collection of seven soybean farmer organizations, including the Iowa Soybean Association, the Soy Transportation Coalition, the United Soybean Board, and a handful of others, decided to commit some resources, totaling $1.3 million, to help underwrite some of the costs of this expansion of this soybean meal export capacity at the Port of Grace Harbor. So the company AGP is going to be uh, investing funds for expanding their own facility, but then the Port of Grace Harbor, again, that's in Aberdeen, Washington, they're responsible for investing a substantial amount of money to increase their rail loading and unloading capacity. So what this funding is going to do from these soybean farmer organizations to help underwrite the cost of some of the pre-engineering, design, permitting expenses that are very necessary for that rail expansion project. With the expansion of soybean processing and future planned expansions, Iowa farmers are realizing the growth opportunity that is in front of them in exporting soybean meal. Well, with all of this current expansion of soybean processing and then particularly all of the planned expansion of soybean processing, and again, that is primarily inspired by the need to have more soybean oil to satisfy this growing and burgeoning renewable fuels market. So because of all of that increased processing of soybeans here in the United States, it presents a a question and an opportunity. What are we going to do with all of this additional soybean meal? For more information, visit soytransportation.org. And that's all the time we have for news headlines this week. Check out the rest of our daily news stories on iowaagnet.com. Coming up after this short break, Dustin talks with Jeff Sullivan of the United States Geological Survey about tracking birds with HPAI. This is Weekend Ag Matters.
every detail matters when building a winning game plan. That's why the Cyclones and Hawkeyes rely on better, cleaner-now biodiesel to power their team buses on game days, delivering success on the field, in the field, and in the environment. Make biodiesel part of your game plan by visiting IASoybeans.com. Biodiesel. Request it. Grow it. Use it. This message brought to you by the Iowa Soybean Association and the Soybean Checkoff. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here's your host, Dustin Hoffman. And we're back here on Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. I'm Dustin Huffman. Well, earlier this week, we learned of a large laying flock of birds in Wright County that needed to be put down as they had contracted the state's first major outbreak of bird flu here in this 2022 fall season. Back in 2015, we didn't have to deal with a fact of a two-season bird flu attack because it went away after the spring migration. Gathering new information has proven to be tough, but we've stumbled on some information almost by accident, courtesy of the United States Geological Survey in Maryland, as they were helping monitor some ducks in the Chesapeake Bay and found one of the ducks they were monitoring had contracted the disease, and they were able to learn new things about how it behaves. We talk right now with Jeff Sullivan. He is with the United States Geological Survey, and he talks about what they've learned. I'm on the phone right now with Jeff Sullivan. He is a biologist for the U.S. Geological Survey at the Eastern Ecological Science Center. Jeff, thank you for taking some time to visit with us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Dustin. So I know farmers in Iowa are going to be wondering why we're going to be talking about a bird in Maryland, but everybody around the country, and Iowa is no stranger to it, has been uh, in fear of and dealing with the uh, HPAI, the high pathogenic avian influenza, or we call it bird flu. But now you guys have been able to track the movement of a wild bird that was known to have the disease. Can you tell us a little bit, first of all, give us some background of how that all came about? Of course. Well, this is one of those great examples of collaboration and science, right? So one of the things that we're really interested in knowing is how this disease moves across space and time through the um, reservoir of the wild waterfowl, right? We know that these birds can serve as a natural reservoir for the low-path viruses, and we know that they do have a role in transmitting the high-path viruses. But unfortunately, we've never gotten movement data from an actively infected high-path bird. And one of the reasons for that, number one, of course, being that we have relatively isolated instances of this disease in North America, the other being that there's only so many transmitters out on wild birds at a given time, due in part to cost. So this study was leveraging other uh, deployment efforts taking place by partner organizations. In this case, it was University of Delaware working with Maryland Department of Natural Resources with funding from Ducks Unlimited for an ecology study focused on lesser scop in the Chesapeake Bay. Uh, and we worked with those scientists there to allow us to take avian influenza swabs from their birds, right? So they were doing their own study and said, hey, this is an important issue. Why don't we work together? We came in, they we collected swabs from those birds, mailed them off to the lab, uh, South, the Southern Cooperative Wildlife Disease Study located in Athens, Georgia, at University of Georgia, to analyze for us uh, and release the birds just as they would have for their normal work. And uh, the lab processing goes ahead and takes place. And sure enough, once we get those results in a while later, we find out that one of the birds we had sampled did in fact have HPAI. 
And so then we were able to use that information to tell us more about how infected birds might move across the landscape. So tell us a little bit about what you what you found. I mean, obviously being able to track that bird, uh, did you see any anomalies or differences compared to other birds that didn't have the disease? We did. Now, I want to preface this by saying that this study only involved one infected bird. So we have to take everything here with a little bit of a grain of salt. Uh, and then that bird actually only stayed alive for three days post-release. We don't know. We weren't able to recover the, uh, the corpse, whether it died from HPAI or some other unrelated instance. Uh, so there is a little bit of limitation with this study. But we saw a dramatic difference in the behavior of this infected bird relative to the uninfected conspecifics or other lesser scop that were captured and released the exact same day. Uh, in fact, the infected bird moved on average about 428 meters per hour relative to over 1,000 meters per hour from the uninfected birds. Uh, similarly, the uninfected birds moved about a good bit further. They left the area, moved on uh, to other regions of the bay, while this one hunkered down and stayed pretty close. What was interesting with this is that we actually did document four instances where the infected bird came in very close contact with other uninfected birds that were also marked. So we could see where their data kind of overlapped with each other, which shows us that even though this bird wasn't out and moving a whole bunch, that it was still very much able to, while it was still alive, potentially infect these other birds out in a wild setting, which is really interesting information for just sort of how they group together and how they behave once they are infected. Now, we've been dealing with the fact that and many of the scientists up here at Iowa State and stuff have said that, you know, they feel it's through the migratory birds and a lot of the Canadian geese fly through here. You know, what, what can that, I know this is only one animal, but what kind of things can that help us understand as we try to understand how it's being spread, how these migratory birds are bringing it up in the spring and apparently still able to bring it back in the fall? Yeah, so this information is really going to help us as we start to model some bird movement, Right. So we can do different types of modeling techniques that allow us to simulate wild bird movement ecology through their migration. And we've done this, in fact, with uninfected birds. And you're trying to look at, okay, if you can move, you probably stay infected for so long based on uh, laboratory studies. You know, where are you shedding this virus? What farms are at risk? But now we can start to include some of the information learned in this study uh, to inform that movement a little bit better to go, okay, we know now this is how sick birds differ from actual healthy birds and start to kind of refine this math that we're doing to give us better estimates of who's at risk and when. Uh, and, uh, you know, I'd like to point out that we've got other ongoing collaborations where we're working very hard to get additional samples from other telemetry birds uh, so that we can not only get different species, but improve the number of birds used in this to get a, a more robust understanding of just how infection with avian influenza does impact wild waterfowl movement ecology. Now, obviously, this kind of uh, information is going to have the attention of the United States Department of Agriculture as they uh, obviously are trying to help farmers mitigate the risk and, you know, eventually also eradicate it if possible. I mean, what, what's the future hold? Uh, has there been any discussions on what could come as future studies now uh, based on what was found here on uh, basically on accident? Sure. Uh, I don't want to speak entirely for USDA on this. You know, USGS really does serve as more of a research organization while USDA works more with the farmers in direct management applications. Uh, however, on other related studies to this, we have been in collaboration with uh, different organizations within USDA 
and looking at translating some of this information to actually modeling transmission risk across the entire United States, across space and time. Looking at, you know, where are the wild birds relative to where are the poultry? Uh, how does infection with avian influenza change uh, across the year? All of that sort of stuff to combine it into a single model that shows us, okay, hey, it looks like these are areas at heightened risk for a uh, what we would call a crossover, a spillover event. All right. Well, obviously, this is a, a first step in, in a large uh, amount of research that still needs to be done. If folks are interested in, in what you've learned and, and the work that you're doing with avian influenza, where could they find some of that information? Sure. They could reach out directly to any of us, or uh, they could visit uh, usgs.gov and find uh, quite a bit of information on avian influenza and move through our different resources that we have available. Well, Jeffrey, I thank you for taking the time to visit with us and and update us on what findings you have and how this could help us in the future. Well, thank you very much. That again was Jeff Sullivan of the United States Geological Survey here on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network and Weekend Ag Matters. When we come back, Mark Magnuson will wrap up the show, so stay tuned. November is full of observances which tie into the ag industry. There's National Hunger and Homeless Awareness Week, National Farm City Week, National Better Conservation Week, the Thanksgiving holiday, and so much more. Take the time to share the story of what your family farm is doing to be better stewards of the land and water. Look at ways your farm can contribute to the benefit of your local community. Also consider making a donation of food and time to help those who are less fortunate than yourselves. Do what you can to make an impact in the world around you this month and always. This message is from your friends at the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network. Welcome back to Weekend Ag Matters. Here is Mark Magnuson. Mark Magnuson with the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network, and I'm here with Mary Kay Thatcher. We are at the Syngenta Media event in New Orleans, and we're talking all about crop protection. But Mary Kay, could you tell us your title with Syngenta and what you do at Syngenta? Sure. I'm the Senior Manager of Federal Government and Industry Relations, which means I work in D.C. a lot on regulations and legislation that affects farmers, and also work with some of the commodity groups and farm groups that, that are good partners with us. So, of course, there's a lot going on right now. It's very hot time as we are just before the election. But when we think about our farmers back in the Midwest, back in Iowa, what should they be keeping their eyes on right now as far as something that's really going to affect them? Well, the first thing they should keep their eye on is they should go vote now or on November 8th. That's going to be pretty critical. And, you know, Iowa's kind of an interesting state. I mean, you have three of the four House members that are in, you know, very toss-up or, or lean Democrat, lean Republican races out of four. That's maybe more than anywhere else in the country. So a good reason to get there as well as Senator Grassley's race, et cetera. So, uh, but I think the thing we need to make sure we're thinking about is the upcoming farm bill. Certainly uh, the discussions are going to start in earnest right after the first of the year. We've had some hearings already, but uh, G.T. Thompson, who will become chairman of the Ag Committee if the Republicans take the House next week, has talked about as many as 150 different farm bill hearings early in the year. So we're talking probably late January, February, really getting started. And with that many of them, we're not going to do them in Washington. We're going to come out to the farmers. And so I think they should be prepared to go and really talk specifically about what's important for them. Not a a laundry list of 40 things I'd love to have that all cost more money because there'll never be enough money for all those things. But what would really make a difference on my farming operation? And you presented yesterday here at the conference, and I know this is not an easy question, you can't predict the future, but if you're looking at the farm bill 
let's say the Republicans win the House and the Senate, how would the farm bill look? And I guess on the opposite side of the coin, what would we be expecting? Well, I think one thing is you would expect a lot less uh, emphasis on the idea of climate change. Uh, Certainly, you're going to see the Republicans do a ton of oversight. I think climate change will be at the forefront of that. You know, how is the three and a half billion dollars in money that the Secretary of Ag has sent out? How is it being spent? I think you're going to look at a lot of oversight about the disaster assistance money that went out because that all pretty much went out through the Commodity Credit Corporation without Congress having a whole lot to do with most of it on how did it really go and then the implementation of was it spent in the right way. So I would say there's going to be a lot of oversight uh, to start with, but then I think probably more emphasis as you think about a a Republican House and Senate um, on farm safety net, et cetera, rather than what more conservation programs can we do to affect climate change. Another very interesting point of your presentation yesterday was I thought when you talked about the counties that are very rural, I think, did you call them pure rural? Is that what it was? And the fact that there's very few that are led now by Democratic politicians, they're almost exclusively Republican. Could you tell us uh, what that kind of looks like? And has that always been the case? Are, are those numbers in the same ballpark as they as they were before? Or are they wildly different? It has not always been the case. I don't know. What was it? 15 years ago when there were 50 some blue dog Democrats, which are the moderate Democrats, they probably lean toward Democratic policies on social issues, but they're fiscally very responsible. Uh, I think of them that there were 23 or 24 out of 26 members of the House committee that were blue dog Democrats. So a very moderate group, right? Uh, Now what you have is you have, by one definition, 70 out of the 435 districts in the the House that are what's called pure rural. But of those 70, only eight are Democratic members. Eight. Um, Now, We all know that in agriculture, most people are Republican. They say, so what? Could there be less? But it's a real problem. If we want to go to EPA, for example, and comment on glyphosate or chlorpyrifos or atrazine or whatever it may be, I can go get 40 Republican members of the House to send a letter, and uh, Mr. Regan's going to say, who cares? But if I go get a couple, three Democrats, that makes a difference. Well, if there's only eight of them to get, and there are four of those eight that are in some significant trouble as far as being reelected, after this reelection, it's possible we only have four Democrats out of 70 people in rural, uh, representing the pure rural districts in America. So that's problematic. We need a little bit better balance. Not much we can do about it, but it's not a throwaway. It's an important thing to remember that, you know, uh, Democrats play a role, Republicans play a role. And if we don't have but one party in agriculture, it's going to make life more difficult. Is there anything else you're watching apart from just the election and I guess thinking about the farm bill coming up? Where else are you kind of keeping track of? Well, we're certainly trying to keep track of EPA and all the issues they're getting uh, pushed through on, you know, are there different ways to get rid of neonics or atrazine or glyphosate or what's happening? Are they really following sound science? Uh, What kind of resources? I mean, I think most people agree that uh, not EPA in general, but the part of EPA that does pesticides is woefully underfunded. And therefore, you know, when when people like Syngenta bring forward new products uh, and there aren't enough people at EPA to evaluate it, it might take an extra two or three years to get that product through the process. Well, most of those new products are, um, you know, more efficient, more environmentally sound, you know, better products. 
So we want to get them out on the market and farmers want new things on the market, especially as we're facing weed resistance on so many of those products. So I think we have to work on making sure we've got a good staff. Again, being very careful, we're not just throwing money at EPA, but putting it within one specific program, the Office of Pesticide Policy, that has the potential to speed up some of these processes. And going back to the historical angle, it does seem like there's a lot of pressure from the EPA on farmers right now and those regulatory demands. Has has that increased or does it just feel that way? Oh, no, it definitely has increased. In fact, I think you could look at the CPA was pretty darn good to farmers in the first year of the administration. Not great on ethanol policy. I think we're still waiting on that. The ethanol announcement what is it, by the 15th or 16th of this month, I believe. Um, but as far as pesticides, they were pretty good. But, you know, my, my speculation is that what happened is, you know, the administration figured out six or eight months ago, hey, there's a really good chance we lose the House. There's a potential we lose the Senate. And therefore, anything that we've been able to do by having a Democratic House, a Democratic Senate, a Democratic administration goes away. And the only way we're going to get it done is through uh, regulatory edict. And so they've moved in that direction. Uh, again, presuming you get one of the other House or Senate that comes into Republican, I think some of that will have to slow down. Mary Kay, is there anything else you'd like to let our listeners and viewers know about when it comes to what they should also be following? Um, well, trade would be an important one. Let's let's keep the foot on the pedal there. You know, we, we kind of let it go. We kept thinking, oh, well, you know, once they figure out some of their policies at USTR, they're going to kick back into gear. But, you know, we haven't had a free trade agreement. You know, the U.S. hasn't for 12 years. It's time. Our competitors are cutting them and we're not. And we really need to continue to push trade when we're sending 20% of the, of the volume and 25% of the value of ag products out of this country. We can't ignore new trade agreements. She's Mary Kay Thatcher with Syngenta. Mary Kay, thank you so much for the time and have a great rest of your week. Thank you. That was Mary Kay Thatcher, Senior Manager of Federal Government and Industry Relations with Syngenta. That brings us to the end of this week's edition of Weekend Ag Matters. You can find replays of all of our Weekend Ag Matters episodes under the podcast tab at iowaagnet.com. For Russ Parker, Riley Smith, and Dustin Huffman, I'm Mark Magnuson. Thanks for listening to Weekend Ag Matters on the Iowa Agribusiness Radio Network.